Welcome to Socialette, your go-to source for bite-sized lessons in launching and online marketing. I'm your host, Steph Taylor, and I'm a corporate dropout turned launch strategist, helping you launch your digital products simply and successfully so you can reach more people, grow your audience, and become the go-to brand in your space. Want to swipe my signature launch framework? Download my free ebook, The Complete Roadmap for a Killer Launch at stephtaylor.co forward slash roadmap. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. And don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of my latest episodes released every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Hey, welcome back to Socialette. This is episode 288. Today's episode, I'm sharing the live Q&A that I ran a few weeks ago for my email list. What I did was I got a bunch of you on a Zoom call and answered all of the questions that you had about creating and launching a digital product. And I was kind of surprised because a lot of the questions that came up were questions that I've heard and answered many times before. But I think if these guys who are asking me these questions have these questions, then probably a lot of you do too. So I thought you might get a lot of value out of listening to the questions that people asked and how I answered them. Because even if they're not 100% relevant to your personal situation, your personal scenario, you might be able to apply them in some way. You might still learn a few things. So without any further ado, we're going to jump into the episode. It's a long one, I know, but stick with it because it is. there is a lot of gold in this one. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to allow you guys to unmute yourselves and it's just going to be first in, first served with questions, um, basically until we run out of questions or until we reach 10 (laughs) a.m. I'd love to stay here all day, but I do have a little baby puppy who needs my love and attention and he can't stay alone too long. (laughs) Okay, so go on, guys, unmute yourselves and ask away. Hi, Steph, it's Tamara. Um, I guess my question is now that I'm in the thick of it, I'm choosing how much of of the right stuff and eliminating the rest. You know, I'm working on a signature program on leadership and it's pretty big because I've been doing this for about 20 years and I'm struggling to eliminate content, um, seeing the benefit in so many little bits and pieces that I can make it even better. But then I go back to your, your adage around get from A to B as fast as possible. Um, So I'm just struggling with that. Can you comment on that for me? Help me out a little. Yeah, sure. Okay. So what is the transformation that you're giving them? Um, An operating rhythm that is less overwhelming and more enjoyable. Mm, Okay. So when you're mapping out the content to get them to this transformation, what, um, what's going through your head when you try to remove bits of content? If I don't do that bit, they won't get as much of the transformation. They won't get as much of the tra- of the transformation or they won't get the transformation? Yeah, no, you're right. As much, yeah. Okay. So if it's – is there – if you're removing that, is it going to actually – is it going to stop them from getting that transformation? How do I answer? I mean, how do I figure that? I mean, <laughs> yes and no, because everybody needs little bits different. Everybody needs different pieces to get there. So by eliminating one, then do I eliminate it for that particular person, their ability to get there? Does that make sense? Yeah. So what I would say in this case is I would always recommend having the main content as the bare bones. So, you know, like the the bare minimum that 
your average student would need to get from point A to point B. And then you can consider adding the rest of the content as bonuses. So if it's not part of the course structure and they need a little bit of extra support when it comes to, you know, X, Y, and Z, they can refer to the bonus rather than having it as part of the core content that's slowing them down from achieving that transformation. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying they can decide for themselves. I need to give them the core and they decide for themselves if they need more and then they take it up as a bonus. Exactly. So typically what I'd say with bonuses is they either should be content that's nice to have, content that, you know, can um, enhance their learning, can make the experience better, can help them to get a better transformation, but it's not essential to the transformation. Or bonuses should address an objection that they might have. So, you know, for example, if an objection they might have is I don't have time, so the bonus might then be something around how they can create extra time. I mean, that's a really, really lame example, but it's probably one of the biggest objections I see all the time. Or like another objection might be, you know, my situation's unique. And in that case, the bonus might be, you know, like a one-on-one coaching call with you. So that's usually what I would recommend with bonuses. But as far as core content, that you just want to get people through from A to B, from the beginning to the end of the core content as quickly and as consistently as possible. How does that sound? What's going up? (laughs) Yeah, that sounds great. It it gives me, I suppose, a better filter just to be really ruthless with myself and say, "That's, that's not necessary what is actually necessary to get the transformation. And that's really what I'm focusing on to help. Exactly. Makes sense. I love it. Yay. (laughs) Awesome. Anyone else? Who's up next? Yeah, I have a question, Steph. Um, Hey, so I have a question regarding my, I'm wanting to do a Facebook ads course, um, a DIY Facebook ads course. And I'm in the middle of launching or about to launch kind of the founding members course. And I'm a little bit nervous as to how much I reduce the price by. Like I have no idea. I've heard, I've read people say, you know, you shouldn't be charging more than $97 for a beta course, a beta course or like a founding members course. And I'm like, I don't know about that. (laughs) So I'd love to hear your thoughts regarding like, yeah, how to go about a founding members course, how many people maybe to, to bring in. I'm thinking around like the 10 to 15 mark and then that would be kind of it. But in terms of actually pricing it as well, like how much do you kind of reduce it by without completely, you know, kicking yourself? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess the, the easy answer to your question is as much as you want to charge for it. Um, but, okay, so I guess it really depends. Okay, like have you got results for clients in the past that you can use as social proof? Do you have testimonials you can use as social proof? Do you have yes, an existing audience that's like ready and waiting for a program from you? Yeah. So I've done all of my like one-on-one stuff previously with my Facebook ads DIY mm-hmm. training, and I've got like three different packages for that currently. Um, but obviously, as you know, you know, one-to-one is so limiting and I know I'm putting a ceiling on my business because of that. And so I'm really wanting to do the whole one-to-many and package it up because it's draining training people with the same content all the time as well. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. So I've done about probably nine to 10 different trainings where I have great testimonials from that, which is awesome. And then I've got about 35 people on the wait list for my founding members course. 
but I haven't kind of put a date out there because I'm so worried that I'm not going to like, I perform well under pressure, but I also don't want to give myself this unnecessary stress to be like, here's the deadline. So, so yeah, to answer your question, I suppose, yes, I do have people there. Um, but I'm just the worst with the whole like pricing myself and knowing how much other people are going to value it and all of that kind of stuff. Cause obviously in my mind, I'm like, well, it's probably best to price it less than my one-on-one stuff because obviously it's a packaged course and it's going to be self-paced and all that kind of stuff. So in my mind, I kind of have an idea around that, but then I'm like, okay, with, with the founding member stuff, I'm assuming I have to take, you know, a hundred, two hundred dollars off that price again, I'm assuming. You don't, you don't have to do anything. That's the magic about, you know, running our own businesses, right? Is you can pick and choose what you do and, you know, like, yeah, I've launched online courses with founding member prices. I've launched them without founding member prices. And the only real benefit of having a founding member price is it creates that, like, it's that urgency to join this time around rather than waiting for the next time around. Um, the one time, the only one time I'd really recommend a hundred percent having, you know, like a beta is if you don't already have results, you don't already have, you know, like, um, case studies that can speak to the signature process you teach, then I would a hundred percent recommend having that founding member price kind of to make up for the fact it's like, you know, as a, as a thank you for putting your faith in me, I'm giving you the cheapest price it will ever be. Um, but yeah, definitely I would recommend keeping it cheaper than your one-on-one, but that mm. could also look like increasing the pricing of your one-on-one. Yeah, true. That's because, <laughs> I mean, I'm guessing you want to do less of that and get more people in the online course. If your one-on-one is too cheap, then people are going to mm. still want to sign up for that rather than the online course because obviously the perceived value of working with you one-on-one is higher than the perceived value mm. of working with a big group. Um, mm. So that's... Uh, yeah, like honestly, in terms of founding member price, as much as you want to charge for it. Mm. And okay. you can even do it so that, you know, each intake that you run it, the price goes up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think like um, I had I tuned into your masterclass thing that you did mm-hmm. um, probably a month or two ago regarding all of this. And I was, yeah, I was kind of thinking, oh, do I need to do a founding members course? But then part of me feels like because it, is different in the sense of like a one-on-one um versus yeah like a self-paced kind of course where they're teaching themselves I feel like I don't have any kind of um I suppose like the content's the same but because it's at their own pace and the onus is kind of on them to learn and implement it and then get the results um I kind of suppose a part of me wanted to like get the testimonials from people who would then have done it the content themselves if that makes sense so do you think that's still worthwhile like or I mean, I'm definitely going to be using the testimonials from one-on-ones with people in, you know, in selling the course and launching it and stuff. But that's kind of where my mind was with it. I suppose I was kind of like, oh, I just feel like people need to do the content themselves and then like I can see the results they're getting from the content that I'm producing and making sure that it's valuable enough for them to actually be, you know, selling their product online or selling their service online and things like that. So when you're doing your one-on-ones, are they taking what you're teaching them and implementing it themselves? Yeah, but it's not, it's one of those things where it's like a 90 minute session or it's a three hour session um, and things. But I also have a package, which is a six week live implementation. And that's kind of where I hold their hand across the entire process of setting up their ad campaigns, 
launching it, all of that kind of stuff, optimizing it. Whereas with the 90 and three hour sessions, it's kind of like I sit there, I do the training with them and then they have two weeks of email support with me if they have issues, but kind of, yeah, it's a lot more on them to kind of do it themselves. Um, so that's kind of where I suppose I was stuck. (laughs) So the real thing here is right. It's on them. It's not on you. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's not, it's not about the testimonial isn't about how well they can implement it. The testimonial is about Mm -hmm. how, you know, if they implement it perfectly, the kind of result they can get. Mm -hmm. Um, and yes, there's always going to be people who sign up who aren't able to implement it. And, you know, they're the people who always buy the courses and don't complete them. There are always going to be people like that. That's nothing on you. That's nothing to do with your teaching or how good your course is or how good your content is, right? Your testimonials are purely speaking about how good you are, how much of an expert you are, how consistent your process is for getting people results. And mm-hmm. if you if your one-on-one training is, you know, similar result to what you're getting people with your online course, then there's absolutely no reason why the testimonials can't cross over. Okay, great. No, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> All good. I'm now so other people can have a go. <laughs> All right. Who's next? So, Steph, are you saying that existing testimonials, social proof from one-on-ones or live workshops can translate into using it to support your online program? Definitely, definitely. I mean, obviously, if they're completely unrelated things, um, like, for example, I wouldn't use a testimonial from somebody I've helped launch a podcast for to, you know, promote my workshop on how to create a digital product because there's just no real real crossover. But if it's, you know, if it's similar, if it's a similar kind of topic, then definitely. Um, if it's a testimonial that speaks to, your character I suppose in some ways character is probably not the right word if it if it speaks to you know like the experience working with you or um you know if they're like oh like Tamara is always um always over delivers and she shows up with so much energy you know that kind of testimonial that could also be relevant yeah yeah that's excellent thank you who's up next you can also post your questions in the chat box if you don't want to unmute yourselves because I know sometimes we don't want to and that's all good too. Um, you guys are so quiet. Uh, my one on Tuesday. Oh, yes, we have somebody. Yay. Oh, you're muted. Oh, sorry. Oh, it's just me again if nobody else wants to go. Um, <laughs> go to cut me off. I'm working at the moment with Signature versus Spotlight. And signature is massive. It'll be a couple grand program, you know, take 90 days. The transformation's pretty big. But then I listened to your webinar, which I loved, and it talked about, well, maybe try Spotlight first. Take a piece of that and test it or use it as a lower price point program. Um, is there an advice on which to do? I mean, you know, some people are saying go signature, go hard, just do it. And some people are saying, nah, use a Spotlight, you know, go more succinctly for a while and test it out yeah which I mean which feels better to you right now which do you feel more inspired to create it's almost like creating a bunch of baby spotlights and linking them together I think for me you know I've always worked that way where I could pull things apart or put them together if I need to um I think I want to go signature because I think the audience is there for it at the moment 
Well, if I mean, if that's where you think the audience is and you think that's what they want and, you know, like you've gone out there and you've spoken to your audience and you found out that that's how they like to learn, that's what they want to learn, um, then definitely, then there's no reason why you can't go signature. There's no rules, right? You don't have to do spotlight first, then signature. You don't have to do, uh, you know, signature first, then spotlight. And actually for those in the audience who don't know what the spotlight and signature courses are, <laughs> these are terms that Amy Porterfield uses to describe different types of online courses. So like a spotlight is one very narrow outcome or result versus a signature course, which is like your signature system. It's like a big comprehensive course. Um, so, I mean, I guess the one time when it would be appropriate to do a, a spotlight course first would be if your audience needed to get to a particular point in time to be ready for your signature. So, you know, maybe they, um, for example, if I was doing a signature course on growing your podcast and I realized my audience actually doesn't have a podcast, my spotlight course might be, you know, how to launch your podcast in 30 days. And then the signature would be growing it. But yeah, if it's, if, it, if signature's feeling more aligned right now and that's what you're feeling called to do, do it. Don't worry about doing the right thing or the wrong thing because whatever decision you make will be the right decision. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I'm definitely going to go out and test it too. So I won't just launch it without having, you know, some people go through it and tell me what they think. So yeah, I think I'll stick to that. Thank you. Yay. Awesome. All right. We've got a question in the chat box from Michael. I've, <laughs> you've been missing the podcast. The podcast is coming back. I am frantically trying to catch up on episodes and I'm hoping to have an episode out tomorrow. It's just been it's been second priority to all of the other loose ends that have needed tying up with my business growth. Okay. Have you ever sold digital courses by message bot from leads you got directly from Facebook ads, i.e. nurturing via messenger? I think I did. I had a chat bot. Oh, I had some fancy automated chat bot things set up a couple of years ago, um, but no real results from it. That said, I didn't really put much strategy into it or much effort into it. So my my answer to that question is really is no. Um, and then also, what platform do you use to deliver digital courses? I'm thinking of using Teachable, but interested to hear what you recommend. Okay, I always recommend Kajabi. It's what I use. It's what a lot of the industry leaders, like you know Amy Porterfield, um, Brandon Bouchard, like James Wedmore, they all use Kajabi as well. It's very robust. It's very scalable. It's it's the kind of platform that will grow with you. Teachable, I don't have any experience using Teachable. I have experience using it from a student side and it's just not as user-friendly in the actual student portals. It's It seems to be less customizable. And the big thing that I have with Teachable is it's free or very cheap at the start, but they take a percentage of your sales. So make sure that if you are signing up for Teachable, you're signing up for one of the paid plans. But then I think the paid plans actually end up being very similar in price to Kajabi's. And I will give you, I'll post in the chat box my link to the 28-day trial for Kajabi. Normally, you can only get a 14-day trial, but I've got a link for a 28-day one. Um, and it's really like, just jump in, give it a try. Um, the other thing when you're choosing your platform is you want to make sure that whatever it is, it's something you're going to stick with long-term because migrating your students across, especially when you have students on payment plans or subscriptions, migrating that from one platform to another is an absolute nightmare and you don't want to have to do it. 
migrating your content is painful. Like it's just, you, you want to stay in one place. So don't, don't choose something based on price alone, but choose something based on what you can see working with your longer term vision for the program and for your business. Um, Okay, Tamara asks, is Kajabi overkill for smaller business launches, etc.? Is it just for big launches audiences? No, it's not just for big. It's obviously they have different pricing tiers based on how many students or how many, I think it's how many students, how many courses you want to have, um, those kinds of things. And it's not overkill at all. It's a very, from a customer service perspective, it's really easy because somebody signs up, they get a login link, they can access everything in one place. Um, it's just really smooth and streamlined and, you know, like, yes, you might be starting with a smaller launch, but the goal is one day to scale that up. And when you start scaling, that's when the little problems start to become big problems, as I recently discovered. <laughs> so you want to try and get everything as perfect and as streamlined while it's still small so that when you grow, the problems aren't growing with it. Um, okay. What about online communities? Is Facebook group the only option or does Kajabi do that? Kajabi has a, it's almost like a forum style community that you can set up so that your members can chat in there. Um, I mean, Facebook groups are one option. I don't particularly like having a Facebook group just because I'm not very active in Facebook and because I don't know, like you, it's very easy to miss posts. Um, also what I've found in the past with Facebook groups is that my students would just tag me in every question that they had rather than trying to help each other out. So there's kind of that expectation that you're going to answer people's questions. Um, so actually that's another thing that I want to point out for those of you considering having a community, make sure that you are very clear with um, your boundaries around how often you're going to be showing up in that community, what kinds of questions you will and won't answer, how much advice you're going to be giving, because there will almost always be one or two students who just like want all of your support and they can't figure anything out themselves. So, I mean, it's like in their best interests for you to actually show them or like you to help them to help themselves rather than teaching them to become reliant on you to answer all their questions. So make sure you're very clear with that. And it's a lot easier if you set those things from the start rather than, you know, getting a month into your online course, realizing that you just can't handle how many questions people are answering or asking you and then trying to backpedal on that. Okay. Any thoughts on integrations, e.g. mail in, and so on in Kajabi versus Teachable? I have been setting up with Teachable and it's okay, but a bit clunky in terms of sales pages to the point I've been building them externally. Okay, um, Kajabi does literally everything. So their positioning is that they are like an all-in-one platform for an online business. So if you wanted to, you could build your entire website, your entire email list, um, all of your sales pages, everything in Kajabi and not have to pay for any other subscriptions. So that's like, that's a pretty cool selling point. Um, I don't personally have my website on Kajabi just because I'm very fussy with my branding and I wanted my website to be amazing. So I got it custom designed on a different platform, but I have built sales pages in Kajabi before and they're very easy. They're fairly flexible and like they're not drag and drop. Um, well, actually, no, they are drag and drop, but within certain constraints. So you can't, it's not like editing a Canva document where you can just like, you know, oh, I want this line over there. I'm just going to move it there. 
it's um, kind of built with like columns and rows, but it's very flexible and you don't need to be able to code to build a sales page. You don't need to, you know, have any design experience. The templates they have are pretty good. Um, so if you don't feel comfortable creating your own from scratch, you can just use their templates and that's pretty easy. Um, in terms of mail with Kajabi, I've never used it for my own email list, but it seems it sends out emails obviously when my students join and those seem to be pretty like they land in people's inboxes not the spam folder that's what really matters to me uh, the only reason i haven't used it for my own email list is because i get very like crafty with things like segmentation and i want it to sync with my facebook audiences and all of those extra features that it doesn't have yet um actually one of the things i will say about kajabi though is their customer support is amazing they have a live chat customer support. So if you're stuck with anything, you just message them and they help you out. Um, and also they are very responsive to feature requests. So if enough people if enough people request a certain feature, they'll just add it and they're constantly adding new things. Okay. Thanks. Awesome. Great. Danielle, we're super new to digital products and courses and we have some ideas that we're trying to validate and we're having a really difficult time. We're in a part of some bigger Facebook groups and have placed a survey in a few of them that haven't seen any results. I think people just hate surveys. How do you validate your course ideas? Yeah, people do hate surveys, um, especially if they're people who aren't really invested in the end result. So if, you know, if the people in the Facebook group don't really know you, they're not really interested in taking an online course by you, then they're probably not going to fill out your survey. So if you have a warmer audience, like maybe an email list or a social media audience, um, as in like, you know, people who are following you, not just people in random Facebook groups, then they might be slightly more responsive to helping you out and filling out a survey. Like, I mean, I sent out a survey to my email list last year and I got, I think like 84 responses. Um, but I told everyone they would get something in the mail and I ended up having to handwrite 84 Christmas cards, which took a long time. So, <laughs> you know, always prepare for that. Um, but what, like, what, I'll, what else I would recommend is if you've worked with clients in the past, if you have, um, if, if you know people on, you know, either on talking terms or on, you know, terms where it wouldn't be weird for you to email them and ask them personally to fill out your survey or it wouldn't be weird for you to, you know, message them on Instagram and say, hey, um, can we jump on a Zoom call for 15 minutes or for half an hour? I'll give you 15 minutes of my time to help you with whatever. And in return, I'd love 15 minutes of your time to answer some questions for me. Um, that kind of like one-on-one -on -one conversation is going to be much more valuable for validating your idea than a survey. And especially with Facebook groups, you kind of have to take the responses with a grain of salt because you don't know if they're necessarily going to be your ideal customer. Um, they could just be random people who aren't really the relevant people or the people you don't want answering your survey. So if you're reaching out to people personally, then you can actually pick and choose like, oh, yes, I value this person's opinion. This person's going to be like an ideal student for me. I want them in my course. I want to know what their thoughts are. So I hope that helps. Okay, payment plans, how long should they be? Three months, six months, etc. Is there a time frame you've noticed when people's payments start defaulting? Um, okay, so I have a lot of people on payment plans and I think about 3% of them off the top of my head, about 3% of them don't make it past that first initial payment, which is very high. 
Um, but having said that, it's on a program that I've sold a lot of to a cold audience. So they're not they're not getting any one-on-one interaction with me. And they like literally they've they've just bought off the back of one webinar with me. So they don't really know me. They don't care about the fact that you know they're not making their payments. Um in terms of how long they should be, there's no one set length. I guess the length depends a bit more on the overall price. So if you were selling like a $200 course, I wouldn't do a 12-month payment plan. But if you're selling a $2,000 course, then a 12-month payment plan is totally okay. Um, One thing that I would learn from my mistakes is make sure there's a way you can revoke their access if they stop making payments. Um, For example, my A to Z podcast launch plan, which is the one where people keep defaulting on their payments, that because it's built in Trello, there's no way to revoke their access. So if they don't pay past month one, then they still have access to the product. That's, yeah, that was a big mistake on my part. (laughs) So make sure there's a way you can revoke their access. Um, And there, there are third parties that you can get to like collect your payments for you. There's a company, I think they're called Gravy, I haven't used them, but I've heard good things about them and they will, you know, follow up with people and try and collect those out, those outstanding payments. Um, so yeah, just go with what seems like a reasonable time frame for your payment plan and always make sure that it's, a, there's a premium, you're charging a premium on the payment plan version. So it might be, you know, 20% more just to cover that risk of them defaulting. Because the idea is, right, you want that cash in as soon as possible and you also want to cover the risk of the people who aren't going to pay. So by charging, you know, 20% more, you'll overall end up with the same amount of payments as if everyone had paid on time, if that makes sense. Um, Okay, what do you think about marketing on LinkedIn versus Instagram or Facebook? Where's your audience? That's the one thing I would consider. you know, I don't market on LinkedIn just because my audience tends to be more on Instagram and Facebook. But I'm sure like if I went out there on LinkedIn and started really pushing it, I'm sure I could find people there, but it's just not the low hanging fruit for me. So it's not my priority. Um, So, you know, if you have the time to do LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook, and your audience is present on all of those platforms, then yeah, like go ahead and do all three. But just I, I would really focus on where you're getting the best results and where your audience hangs out. Okay, just curious, why didn't you host the podcast course on Kajabi? Um, okay, so the thing with my podcast launch plan is I don't market it as a course. It's like it's almost like an anti-course. There are so many other courses teaching people how to launch a podcast, but my gripe with those is they tend to be really expensive and they tend to take a long time to work through the content because you have to watch all the training videos. I wanted my launch plan to just be like, this is what you need to do. Like, this is just, it's pure action. There's no theory. There's no learning. It's just step by step by step. And the best format that I could find where people could just tick off boxes as they go um, without, you know, needing to host training videos or anything like that, the best option I could find was Trello. So that's why it's not in Kajabi. If If Kajabi had the option to set it up in that, you know, like, Step one, um, buy your podcast equipment. Here's a list to my, or here's a link to my recommended podcast equipment. Tick that off. If I could have done that in Kajabi, I would have, um, but I just couldn't, unfortunately. So, yes. Okay. 
anyone anyone want to unmute yourselves questions chat box questions let me know i'm just going to hang out here until we run out of questions or yeah 10 o'clock steph um Hamilton mcmillan here i am starting my journey completely from scratch so i've really just turned up today to absorb and listen and learn um, I'd be keen to hear your thoughts on how you have started your community uh, from zero. <laughs> uh, it's, it's taken a long time. Um, yeah. I mean, I've, my business in its current form has been around for just over two years, but I've been in business for like four years now. And I guess the biggest community builder for me has been paid traffic as much as you probably don't want to hear that it it's a very mm-hmm. slow burn trying to build a following on organic social media these days mm-hmm. and the real thing that's kick-started my growth has been running ads and getting people onto my email list so I don't really worry too much about my Instagram following I don't do anything to consciously try and grow it it grows as a side effect of me running so many Facebook ads Um, So I nurture them by making sure I'm sharing good content, but I'm not consciously trying to grow it. I focus more on growing my email list because those are the people who end up really engaged. Those are the people who, you know, sign up for my live Q and A's and show up on a Thursday morning. Um, Those are the people who actually, you know, end up being the ones who are clicking through and listening to my podcast episodes, clicking through and checking out my Instagram post if that's what I've emailed them about. So really focus in on building that email list. Doesn't matter if you have, you know, like 50 Instagram followers, if your email list has people on it and they're engaged, then that's really the best place to have them. Um, Mm. Also making sure that you email them regularly. Don't Mm. just build that list and then forget about them. Keep them engaged. Mm. Um, A small, a lot of people sort of think, oh, like, you know, there's no point emailing my list. I've only got 20 people on there. If you can get those 20 people to be super engaged and, you know, like, five of them buy your online course, like that's pretty awesome. You know, it's not about having a huge list. It's about really nourishing that list that you do have. Um, Mm. And then I guess the other thing that's really helped build my community was my podcast. A lot of people have come across me through my podcast. (laughs) So that um, if you don't have a podcast, maybe getting on, um, getting interviews on other people's podcasts who have a similar audience but aren't competitors of yours, that's a good way to start getting to um, getting to reach new people, um, pitching other podcasts. Yeah, yeah not enough people. Thought about it. a podcast, but um, I'm also working full time, so this is like full on side hustle mode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so well, I just in that don't case. have the capacity to push out that much content. I'm already thinking, holy crap, how am I going to push out my Instagram content? Yes, this question actually came up on Tuesday's Q&A as well. Um, So I would make a list of podcasts that are in your space that you think, you know, like, oh, the people listening to this podcast would be my ideal customers, my ideal clients. I would make a list of those podcasts, find out where you can contact the host. So whether it's their email address or like a contact form on their website, and then reach out and, or like listen to the podcast as well, reach out and say, you know, hey, I loved, um, I loved what you talked about in this episode. 
talk about something that you would only know if you'd listened to that episode. Don't just be like, oh, I love this podcast. I love this episode you did on five Instagram tips. I get that all the time. Um, and mm. it just doesn't really inspire me. It's like, okay, cool. You actually didn't listen to that episode at all. Um, mm. So make sure that you're building that connection. Then introduce yourself briefly, like position yourself as the authority. So say like, you know, uh, this is what I've done or this is um, – these are some of my credentials. I don't know, something that really makes them be like, okay, this person is somebody worth listening to. It could be, you know, a snippet of your story, something that is going to be interesting. And then give them, you know, I give them bullet points on how you can help their listeners. So, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to come on to your show so that I can share with your listeners, um, the three things that they need to know before they start launching a digital product, a digital product, why they should care about launching a digital product and the one action step they can take to start launching their digital product. So like really give them that takeaways. And then you can even potentially put in there, like some questions you might ask me could include um, what made you pivot from client work to selling digital products could be a question they might ask me. So really make it about their listeners and make it as easy as possible for them. Um, Yeah. Hopefully that helps. That's fantastic <laughs> advice. Thank you so much. Awesome. I'm glad I can help. If we can get rid of bad podcast pitches in the world, I will be a much happier <laughs> person because I get so many of them. I got one the other day that was from a guy that was like, I, um, I've i been on five podcasts and I would like to come on yours to talk about real estate and growing your wealth. And I was like, no, oh. okay. You clearly don't know what my listeners what are looking for. <laughs> Awesome. Yes. Hello, um, Michael here. Um, I wanted to ask you about your podcast um, uh, course that you did. And I think that that course is quite different to um, most of your other stuff. And I'm curious to know, uh, have you had any opportunities to nurture that audience or is it more just you sell them the course and then they're done? Or like, so how have you tried to bring them into your podcast I guess, you know, your ecosystem to, you know, digital launches and stuff like that? Or do you see it as more, okay, this is a separate thing. I've got something that I can sell to them and then that's that's it for them. Yeah, great question. I love this. So it, it's kind of been an accident that I created that product and grew that audience. I had a lot of friends asking me, like, oh, how do I launch a podcast? And I thought, okay, well, I've launched a podcast. It's really easy I'm just going to, you know, put together this Trello board, taking people step by step through it, not expecting to sell 3000 copies of it. <laughs> so it's only really been a recent thing where I've been like, oh crap. Okay. Now I have, you know, I've taught, I think 75,000 people through my free webinar. I now have, you know, 75,000 people on my email list who are following me because they want to learn how to launch a podcast. So for me, it's been like, okay, so how can I bring these people across into launching digital products? And it took, it took me a little while before it clicked. And then I was like, hang on, people want to make money when they launch a podcast. A really good way to make money out of a, pod- a podcast is with a digital product. So there's been a lot of me trying to educate those people and bring them across. Um, so for example, the Q&A that I ran on Tuesday was similar to what I'm doing with you guys, but with that podcasting segment. And it was all about monetizing your podcast with a digital product. So that was kind of me starting to, you know, get the cogs turning, get them to click and be like, ah, okay, 
I don't need to be, you know, the biggest expert in the world to create an ebook that I can sell off the back of my podcast. Um, so there has been a lot of that educating and I'm going to have to do a lot more of it. Um, it's just, yeah, it's going to be me becoming a bit more intentional with my content around that. But there was, there was zero strategy there at the start and it's just been me like backpedaling, trying to figure out a strategy since. So I hope that answers that question. It may be a follow-up if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Um, have you thought about actually, because you've built up such a huge audience off this product, have you thought about pivoting into, well, you know, how can I take these people on this journey or do you want to sort of stay more, bring them into your lane or, or move into their lane? I kind of want to stay away from their lane. I have a lot of friends who operate in that space. So I am looking at, you know, doing affiliate partnerships so I can offer them um, things on, you know, how to grow your podcast, how to use, um, how to turn your podcast content into video content, that kind of thing. So I'm looking at offering them affiliate things, but I don't particularly feel inspired to teach how to grow your podcast or, you know, how to book dream guests. I don't feel inspired to teach that kind of stuff. I really enjoy teaching what I teach. Um, there was a little bit of a moment where I was like, oh, maybe I could create some little, you know, some little product for them. And I like, I haven't ruled it out. I might still create a small product for them or something, but I quite like doing what I do. <laughs> okay. Who's up next, guys? Anyone? Okay. In your opinion, what kind of people respond well to joining a group for 12 weeks and offering that 12-week program, including videos, webinar catch-up every three weeks, etc., running this three times a year? Pros and cons with this in your experience. Okay. Um, this is a really difficult question to answer because I haven't run a 12-week program. <laughs> um, the ones that I've been part of, they've gone well. It's just a lot of energy to keep everyone committed and focused for a whole 12 weeks. I've, I guess in some ways I did run a 12 week program as an affiliate. So every year I'm an affiliate for Amy Porterfield's digital course Academy. So if you guys are thinking of launching an online course, stay tuned for that in, I think it's launching next month, early September. Um, so I will be offering my bonuses again for that. But what I did for my bonuses last year, was one of the things I offered was 12 weeks of calls on top of the calls that they had as part of Digital Course Academy. They then got smaller group calls with me. And that was really awesome. But what I noticed towards the end was people really started dropping off because um, they'd been focusing so hard on building this online course and building their audience and showing up for their audience that they actually started getting more people wanting to work with them one-on-one. -on -one. And because, you know, like, why would you say no to one-on-one -on -one clients when you're tight on money? They ended up being too busy to create, to finish creating their online course in that 12 weeks. So I've kind of gone off on a tangent. <laughs> um, I guess the real thing I'm trying to say is it's hard to keep people committed and focused for 12 weeks. If you have that kind of energy where you can show up all the time and keep people on task and keep them going, then yeah, there's no, re no reason why you shouldn't do it. Um, Running it three times a year, I guess a con of that would be um, that people would learn to expect, you know, like, oh, if I don't join now, I can join it in four months' time. Whereas with something like Digital Course Academy, it only opens once a year. 
you know that if you don't join it this September, you have to wait till next September. Um, so that kind of helps with that urgency for people to join. Um, what else? Pros and cons. Um, pros, I guess, that each time you run it, it'll get easier because you'll have more content from the previous group of people. You'll have insights from the previous group of people. You'll um, potentially be able to use like your video recordings over and over again. So it'll get easier the more you run it. Um, cons is, uh, I think I really touched on most of the cons. Um, yeah, just really making sure like if you are committed to showing up for them every single week for 12 weeks, just making sure that you have blocked that space out in your calendar because I think it will, it'll end up taking quite a lot of time but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Hopefully that answers it. But yeah, like just test it. <laughs> this is my attitude towards everything, right? I'm like, yeah, just, you know, you don't know if it's going to work for you or not until you test it. You might run it once and be like, holy hell, I hated that. Or you might be like, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm going to keep running this. I want to do it four times a year. Um, like there's been times when I've been like, oh, it would be lovely to have a group coaching program. And I've done it. And then I've been like, I'm never, ever running that again. It was stressful. <laughs> so, yeah, it's you don't really know if it's right for you or not until you just test it. Cool. There's oh, part of the back with a bit of a newbie question. Go for it. Um, I'm currently mapping out my launch to my main program I guess what you would call a signature program mm -hmm. um I've kind of mapped out four weeks of content to to build my presence and authority and then I'm planning on hosting a free webinar um, and then from that free webinar um advertising my course off the back of that and then uh advertising it for a further say three or four weeks and then launching my course let's just say a month after the webinar so launching my course in total two months after i've posted my first ever kind of instagram post do you think that might be a bit too quick i would recommend if you're starting out and you don't have an audience i would say 90 days yeah um, as in, so how I would do it would be probably, let's say, so two and a half months of just posting content, then a week of promoting your webinar. You, I, I wouldn't promote your webinar too far out from the webinar because people will sign up and then forget about it. Yeah. So you want it, you want them to sign up, be really excited and watch the webinar, like while they're still excited and motivated. Um, yeah. And then off the back of the webinar, I would have doors open to sign up for like maximum 10 days, mm. depending on the price point. If it's a higher price point, then you'd be leaning more towards 10 days because, you know, maybe they need to actually figure out where am I going to get this money from? Maybe they need to get permission from their partner. Maybe, you know, mm. like that, that kind of thing. Um, yep. If it's a lower price point, I would go more like five to seven days and then you close doors and then, you know, you release your content whenever you want it to start officially. Um, so I would, yeah, go two and a half months of more authority building, not just authority building. I think this is one place where a lot of people go wrong is they focus too much on like, oh, I need to teach people everything I know. I need to show them that I'm the expert. When mm. in actual fact, like 
they don't want to learn more stuff all the time. They often just need mindset shifts. So mm -hmm. if you look, if you go on my Instagram, you look at a lot of the content that I post, it seems educational, but it's actually me trying to shift your mindset. Mm -hmm. So when I'm talking about, you know, like, I think one I did one that I did recently was um, me trying to dispel the myth that my audience wouldn't pay that much. Mm -hmm. It's not actually a myth. It's a limiting belief that my audience have. So mm -hmm. instead of educating them with that content, I'm trying to shift their mindset to be like, actually, your audience would pay that much. You just need to think about it from a different angle. So think about like what your audience needs to, you know, know and what they need to believe about themselves, about, um, you know, I, I don't know what your niche is, but like you think about what they need to believe to be true, to be ready to buy mm. from you. Thank you. I hope I haven't confused you too much there. <laughs> Overwhelmed. No, no, it's great. I've, um, like I said, absorbing, messing down things. So no, it's good. Thank you. Yay. Glad to hear that. Okay. Uh, should you refer to other sources, give references and talk about other people's research, etc., to add weight to your program element? Or is that too much and dilutes the fast track from A to B? If they don't need to know the research, then there's no reason why you need to give it to them. Um, it's, you know, if they are the kind of people who, yeah, they want to see the evidence, they want to see the, I don't know, the numbers, the statistics, whatever. If they want to know the research, then, yeah, you could add it, like, as references. You could put it in... Um, I don't know, like in one place where they can refer to that, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't include it for the sake of including it. Only if you absolutely have to have it there. Otherwise it will slow them down. So, um, but in terms of like referring to other sources, if for example, like I often refer to things, I often refer to things that like James Wedmore teaches or that Amy Porterfield teaches. And I will refer to them as a source because, you know, there's, I couldn't put it in better words myself and that's who I learned it from. So in those cases, yes, I will use them as sources, but I wouldn't be like, you know, here are the statistics about, or here's some research on digital products if it's not relevant to what people are actually wanting to achieve. So I hope that answers that. Anyone else? Awesome. Tamara is giving me a thumbs up. That's good. <laughs> so it's hard to know when you're answering, if you're answering people's questions, because I tend to ramble sometimes. Hey, Steph, it's uh, okay. James. Hey, James. Um, hey, um, hopefully this question makes sense. It's, it's a bit of a nebulous one, but, but I guess um, how, it's always a good idea to throw things out there quickly, I think, right, because you need mm -hmm. proof. Um, how, how unpolished would you make it? <laughs> um, you know, like when you're putting content out there, how, how do you decide, um, um, you know, when good enough is, when, you, when it's good enough? <laughs> um well here's the thing right like if it feels like 70 to 80 percent good enough for you then that's probably going to be like 120 percent good enough for your audience they don't they don't hold you to the same standard that you hold yourself just like in my experience we business owners tend to be kind of hard on ourselves <laughs> yeah. and it's never we never feel like it's good enough so if you feel like it's yeah 70 80 percent good enough it's probably good enough um but in terms of like how unpolished um, if it's more, it doesn't need to, you know, look nice. It just needs to be functional, right? 
if you're getting the message across clearly, if it's set out in a way that's helping them to get that result, then that is, um, that's perfect. That it doesn't need to be, you know, high quality video. It doesn't need to be beautifully designed slides. It doesn't need to be a beautifully designed ebook, whatever. It just needs to get them that transformation. You can always go back and re-record the video, yeah. redesign the ebook, redo all of the little things, add extra bonuses, add extra content. You can always do all that but just start with like the bare bones the first time. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Um, how do you decide which content is offered for free or behind a paywall? So a lot of the content that I teach that people pay for is actually very similar to the content that I teach for free. It's just more the structure and the fact that it's, you know, they don't have to piece it together and they can, you know, get that result a lot quicker. So. I guess like when you're putting something behind a paywall, when you're charging for a product, I would focus more on like the the time saving element and the actual journey that you're taking them on. So, you know, they, yes, they might be able to find, um, uh, maybe I would post elsewhere, like what podcasting equipment to use, but then they have to then refer back to all of my other posts to figure out, okay, this is step one. This is step two. This is step three, step four. Um, so really focus on sharing that time saving stuff. Also, a lot of the stuff that I offer for free is more around those mindset shifts. Um, it's more around, you know, getting them ready to buy rather than necessarily teaching them more, more, more. You don't want them to be like, oh, my God, I'm getting so much good value from this free stuff. I don't actually need to buy the paid course because that's kind of counterintuitive. But at the same time, you want them to feel like they're getting enough value uh, that they want to learn from you a little bit more. So I guess that was a bit of a rambly answer, but hopefully that answers that question. Um, at the end of the day, if you feel like you're giving away too much content for free, it's probably the right amount. Um, yeah, it's just about getting really strategic about, you know, where it all fits in and the kind of journey that you're taking people on from when they first come into contact with you to being ready to buy from you, to buying from you, to once they've bought from you, what's that next step? Cool. How are we going? We've still got seven minutes. So if anyone else has other questions, please hit me up. <laughs> so Steph, I know I kind of touched on um, my course is going to be like a Facebook ads kind of how to do it yourself kind of course. Um, I suppose like a lot of my modules and lessons and stuff are a lot of like walkthroughs of the screen. And I'm just wondering, should I be doing more like slide stuff as well? I mean, I've kind of polled my waitlist audience and things on what they'd be interested in, but I just know that like, I mean, with my one-on-ones that I do with clients, I know that obviously a walkthrough of the platform plus Facebook's always changing. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm well aware I'm going to have to go in and update the content pretty frequently, I think, which is a bit of a, uh, but whatever <laughs> we'll deal with that future Jess's problem. Um, but I'm just trying to like work out in terms of the actual content creation, you know, um, your advice with like the, the format of that and like, you know, with slides and stuff, do you really need to kind of be on camera in the corner? Do people, does that detract from the value that you're giving to them um, with the slides and then with the walkthroughs again, do I like, you know, I, I feel like I'm stalling the content creation process because I'm overthinking that content creation um, and trying to work out, you know, oh, do I need good lighting because I'm going to be on the camera in the bottom corner? Do I really need to be on camera? Like <laughs> all that kind of stuff. So I'd love to hear your experience and your thoughts. Yeah. 
I agree that you're overcomplicating it. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's no online course police that are going to be like, oh my God, Jess, you didn't, um, you didn't put your face on the slides. Oh my God. Or you didn't have enough slides in your course. If having slides in your course is going to help your students get results quicker, it's going to help their learning, then yeah, include them. If they don't need slides, then including them is actually going to slow them down. Um, if the best way that you can teach them is through screen shares, then a hundred percent just do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then even like with lighting, it doesn't matter. I mean, I recorded an entire <laughs> online course with Apple headphones that didn't, the sound quality was awful and you know, nobody complained. Um, my first online course, I didn't have my face on camera at all in the entire thing. And it was all good. Mm-hmm. If I, you know, and if I'd continued to grow that course, maybe I would have gone back and re-recorded it all and done some direct to camera. I don't know. It's the, the easiest thing when you're editing, obviously, is to not have your face on camera because mm-hmm. it, you can then tell it like looks a bit jumpy when you edit out little bits. Mm-hmm. But it, like if you feel comfortable putting your face on camera, do it. If you don't, don't. I wouldn't stress about lighting and things like if you if you look at any of my videos that I've done like half the time I'm in active wear and like I don't have any makeup on my head tied <laughs> up like <laughs> it doesn't look particularly polished <laughs> nobody's ever yeah, complained or made a comment <laughs> yeah no that's super reassuring because yeah I think I know I'm definitely stalling with that kind of thing so I just wanted to hear your thoughts regarding that um because, yeah, I just feel like, uh, I don't know, it's probably a money mindset thing, but I feel like, you know, if people are going to be pouring a lot of or investing a lot into their business to learn from you, I know that it's a lot more about the value than the quality of it in that sense. But like, um, I just know that, you know, if I was spending hundreds of dollars on something, I would want it to kind of look, you know, semi-decent at least and things. So I think I'm just being really hard on myself in that, from that aspect. Look, I don't know about you, but I've paid more for less before. <laughs> okay. and you know, at the end of the day, I'm not going to be, I I mean, maybe I'm, I'm probably not your like ideal customer. I don't know what your ideal customer is like. If it's something that they really value, if they really value that polished video, then yeah, maybe you need to. But um, like I've paid, you know, thousands of dollars for online courses that have been very shabbily set up and I've never had an issue. I've never been like, oh, I didn't get value for money because it is at the end of the day, it is the transformation that you're giving them rather than how it's designed and the slides and the video and all of that. (laughs) Mm -mm. Yeah. Thank you. All good. Um, Okay. Question in the chat box. How do you record video? I'm really lazy. Sometimes I just record it with my webcam. (laughs) Um, I I do actually have an external webcam that I can set up on top of my laptop and it's slightly better quality than the built-in webcam. Um, I do have a proper camera that occasionally I will use to record stuff, but only if it's a short amount of content, because I, if you're, if you're recording longer videos, you need a teleprompter. I have a teleprompter. I've just never set it up. (laughs) You tell I'm lazy. Um, Yeah. So I don't really use a camera. I would just get yeah, talking to my webcam. It's easy because then you can have your notes on your screen and just it lo- doesn't look so much like you're reading um, or you can set up a teleprompter on your computer screen. Um, but I wouldn't get too like caught up in the specifics of how to record the video because you know at the end of the day, your viewers don't really notice if it's webcam quality or even better quality. <laughs> and actually better quality video is a bit of a pain because it can it's obviously going to be a bigger file size which means it takes longer to edit. Your computer might 
implode. My old one did. Um, it takes longer to export. It takes longer to upload. If you uh, don't have fast internet, like I don't have fast internet, it takes forever to upload a video. So yeah, that, those are all things to consider. Cool. Okay. Well, we're at 10 a.m. So I'm going to love you and leave you guys. But thank you so much. This has been a really fun session. And I, you guys have all brought awesome questions. It's actually kind of nice. Like a lot of the questions that I got today weren't the ones that I always get asked. So it's a nice little change. But yeah, thank you so much, guys. I hope you have a fabulous rest of the day or evening if it's evening where you are. And yeah, hope to see you guys soon. Bye.